I always tell my clients, every word needs to earn its place on the page. Even though it's 40 documents, this is an elevator pitch. You have to condense your idea into something that's bite-sized, something they can understand and get excited about. I mean, isn't that essentially what we're doing in magazine pitching, right? Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Travel Media Lab podcast. I'm your host, Yulia Denisuk, an award-winning travel photographer, writer, storyteller, community builder, podcaster, and entrepreneur working with publications like National Geographic, The New York Times, and more, traveling to interesting places around the world and producing stories that I'm excited about. Travel Media Lab is our platform for helping you break into the travel media space where we share insights, tips, advice, and stories from people working in this industry. On today's episode, I am talking to Christine Chitnis, a Rhode Island-based published book author and writer and photographer contributing to publications like the New York Times, Elle, Travel and Leisure, Condé Nast Traveler, and more. I started following Christine on Instagram a while ago because of her beautiful photography book called Patterns of India, and I'm a huge fan of her and her work. In this conversation, we get into the realities of working as a travel photographer and writer as a mom of three, how book concept pitching differs from and is the same as pitching ideas for publications, the process of landing a book proposal, and what stories Christine is working on now. We also get into a conversation about imposter syndrome, all the should-haves we burden ourselves with, and aging in the creative industry, a personal favorite topic. It was a very meaty conversation. We covered a lot of ground and we could have easily gone on for another hour. I was so excited to interview Christine and I hope you enjoy this conversation. And before we get into this episode, I want to give a shout out to A. Will1494, who left us this review on the Apple Podcast platform. If you'd like to learn about travel writing and so many other things in such a way that you feel like you're sitting at a coffee shop laughing and chatting with friends who also love travel, this is the podcast for you. Thank you so much for your kind feedback, A. Will1494, and for listening to our show. You know, leaving us a rating and review is one of the best ways you can support our show. So if you haven't done that yet, this is your invitation. Please do that today as you're listening to this episode. All right, let's get into the conversation with Christine. All right. Welcome, Christine, to our podcast. I'm super, super excited to have you on and share your thoughts and your wisdom with us here on the podcast on Travel Media Lab. How are you, my friend? I'm good. It's so good to see you. I'm excited to be doing this and just really honored to be here. You know, I'm a huge fan of your podcast. So yay. Yes, I know, Christine. It's so cool, right? So it's so cool that we found the time to do this. And for our listeners, uh, Christine and I have known each other for some time on Instagram. We've been following each other's work. And Christine actually reached out to me to do a individual session in preparation for a conference that she was attending. And when she reached out to me, I was like, wait, what? Because I was such a fan of her work and her book. I don't remember how I started following you. I think somebody shared something. I don't remember, even remember, but I remember thinking, wow, this woman is amazing. And look at that book. Like I was so fangirling you. And then you messaged me and I'm like, what? <laughs> What's happening here? But I loved it. I loved it. 
Thank you. Well, the fangirling goes both ways for sure. And I know we're going to get into it, but the book world and magazine world are very similar in some ways and very different in others. And in some ways, I feel like I know so much. And in other ways, I feel like I know so little. So I was grateful for our one-on-one session. And, you know, pitching is always tricky. And sometimes it just helps to have another set of ears to just bounce things off of. And am I getting this right? What am I doing? Yeah, (laughs) I come up with those questions a lot. So I loved our one-on-one session. And then we got to meet just recently at IMM, which was so much fun. I know. Yeah, it was amazing to meet you in person. And yeah, just before we started recording, we were talking how IMM is such an intense experience because you're going through so many you know, meetings. Uh, and I, I've talked about this before. So you guys, if you listen regularly to the podcast, you should remember this uh, this uh, name, IMM, Trav Media. It's this huge conference that happens once a year. And yeah, so Christine and I met there in person, which was awesome. But by the end of it, we were both so exhausted from all those conversations. Yes. And, you know, I'm definitely more of an introvert. I love one-on-one conversations in small group, but, you know, big settings like that, it's overwhelming for me. So I loved all the meetings and I did, gosh, all of them. I should have taken your advice and scheduled a few breaks for myself because there's barely even time to go get a drink of water or use the bathroom. It was wild, but I did all those meetings and then there was a cocktail hour and I don't know how people did it because I was done. I was absolutely fried. So I didn't get to say goodbye, snuck out and went home, put my feet up and totally just crashed because I was exhausted. But it was a great conference. And I think my favorite part, honestly, was meeting all my fellow writers, some of whom I'd never met in person, I'd followed on Instagram, and getting to meet them in person was probably the highlight for me. So I loved it. Totally. And in fact, I was talking to an editor friend of mine and asking her if she's going to come. And she was like, well, no, because at this point in my career, I don't really need it. Like I'm already, you know, people already message me any outside of the conference, PR companies and tourism boards reach out to her, they know her, you know, so she's like, no, I'm not coming. And I thought, well, because I'm kind of in the same place, right? I don't necessarily need to go and, and make these connections with a lot of these tourism boards. But for me, what I've realized is that actually this is what I love as well, because it was so amazing to see everybody in person. You know, this industry can be isolating and lonely sometimes because we're all working on our own, on our own stuff. And yes, sometimes we meet in press trips, but you know, it's still far and few between. And so I just love that feeling of kind of coming back to the camaraderie of meeting some of the people that I know in the industry and saying hi. And for me, it matters. So I'm going to continue coming every every year. Absolutely. And I feel the same. I get I do. I'm very lucky, very privileged. I get a lot of wonderful trip offers, PR and, and all of that. So I do feel well connected. And yet I already scheduled my first trip with someone that I met at IMM going on a private trip down to do a story based on a conversation that I had actually outside of my meetings. We just connected at lunch and she was representing a place I was excited to go. And so that's already happening. So I would say even if you are someone whose inbox is, you know, relatively full of press requests and PR, and it's still worthwhile, you can always expand your network. And I think As I get older, I realize that, you know, my network is probably my most powerful tool that I have. And why not grow it? And why not meet new people? And I'm always open to that. I think it's just something I love to do. And again, even if big groups are really intimidating or overwhelming, which trust me, they are for me, I think you can find those small moments of connection. And that's what I really, really like about the whole experience. So totally. Oh, my God, we could have a whole episode about IMM. And in fact, 
Actually, we we do. So you guys will link in the show notes because we, we did an episode with one of our community members. That was her first time I'm experienced and we recorded that whole thing. So definitely check it out as well. But I want to talk to you about the story that you published in Elle magazine called Into the Wild, which is such an incredible big meaty story with sort of three separate vignettes from Rwanda, from Tanzania, and from Uganda that all explore how post-COVID, as we're sort of returning to travel, how conscious tourism can help some of those communities and the wildlife in that destination flourish. And I loved that story. It was so beautiful. I loved reading about the Dunia camp in Tanzania. And I just loved, loved how you ended that part of the story with I've got this. That was so beautiful, that ending. I was like, oh, damn, that is good. Like, as a writer, I kind of recognized, you know, that beautiful ending. So yeah, kudos to you. It was so beautiful. And our listeners will link to that story as well in the show notes. Definitely check it out. It's a beautiful piece of work from Christine. But I want to know sort of what do you love about the story that you wrote for Elle? Oh, goodness. Well, I love, first of all, how it happened. I used to write quite a bit for Martha Stewart Living. And one of my editors there introduced me to the editor at L. And to me, there's no greater compliment than when an editor passes your name along. I felt so deeply honored that she thought enough of my writing and, you know, what I write about, the subjects, how I tackle difficult subjects. The fact she felt I was in a position to contribute to L in that way was, was first of all, I was just so honored. And so I was introduced to the editor there and she basically said, you know, we are looking for a travel feature that goes outside of kind of our typical destinations. They do tend to be pretty Europe focused. And so I had been really thinking about the safari industry, what a post-COVID comeback was looking like. And really, I often take the lens of women in travel. So I, I try and say, like, what voices are missing from these stories? And I felt like a lot of the safari pieces I was reading were very male-dominated. You always saw the guides were portrayed as male. The safari camp owners were male. And it was like... Written by a male writer. <laughs> by a male writer, yeah. And a photographer, you know, and the list goes on. And so for me, it was this, I know there's women there. I know that they're involved. And I know that the tourism sector in Africa, especially in this, you know, safari sector, it's big money and it's an important part of the economy. So women need to be getting a slice of that. Women need to be getting the slice of that pie. It's a big part of the economy. So I think when I, you know, L to me actually wasn't on my radar in terms of pitching travel stories, to be honest, in my mind, it was a, a beauty and fashion and profiles of women in many sectors, but it just hadn't occurred to me to pitch them. So the fact they came to me, I was, you know, it was a great time for me to pitch this story where women, you know, it was the focus in the safari industry. And so it was kind of both stories. It was how is the safari industry recovering after COVID? How did COVID um, affect the tourism industry across the countries, you know, Rwanda, Tanzania, Uganda? And then it was also there was a look at conservation efforts. And then really, I think to me, there were so many highlights, but an all women run safari camp was such a great story. I just still kind of it's a pinch me moment that I got to write about it. And I have to tell you, I was solo traveling. And, and I know you do this quite a bit. I'm on my own, I'm going, you know, halfway across the world. And I'm going to an incredibly remote site. And it was off season. And so I was the only traveler. 
And showing up to a place where it was all women was such an incredible experience. I felt incredibly safe. I felt really well cared for. I felt seen. And I'm not sure that would have happened in a camp that was predominantly men. I think, you know, it would have just felt very different. And so I was really excited to write that story. And I think the Dunia camp, and then of course, Rwanda was incredible seeing, you know, all the conservation efforts around the gorillas, being able to trek and see the gorillas, and really understand how Volcano Safaris has played such a role in both the tourism there, but in such a thoughtful way, and had such an impact on the local economy and conservation. I mean, what a dream story, right? <laughs> it was like, it was the dream. And and then the Uganda piece was heavily reported. And again, I was like, who are those women's conservationists and scientists behind this? And how does public health and conservation intersect? So very big. I, I kind of joke sometimes, I like to bite off a lot more than I could chew. And then I get like, what have I done? Like, I'm, I'm talking about like women in travel, post pandemic recovery, conservation, public health, and it's totally overwhelming. And so I think when it all ends up coming together, it's like a miracle slash almost pushes me into a panic attack every time. So actually, let's let's spend a little bit of time here. So how do you how do you sort of bring yourself out of that? Ah, what have I done mode? Because this is actually something that happens a lot inside our community where people are like, well, I'm, I'm even afraid to pitch this because I think this is too big for me. I'm, not, I'm afraid. What if they say yes? And I actually have to write the thing, you know? So how do you sort of get yourself out of that mode and still pitch? And at the end of the day, you deliver the work. And, you know, I always say it's you have to trust yourself that you will deliver the work and take that leap. But I, I wonder how you approach it. Well, I will say this, what you're seeing now in my career is the tip of the iceberg. And that iceberg is a decade of writing. And I started with local publications, a lot of times working for very little money covering things that maybe other people didn't find interesting and wouldn't find interesting. I covered everything in my community here in Rhode Island. And I wrote extent, I mean, my archive of local small publications is huge. And my archive of my national work is small. So practice and learning to work with editors and learning to say to an editor, I'm overwhelmed and I really need help kind of seeing the forest through the trees. I used to be really scared that that was admitting weakness or admitting that you didn't know what you were doing. And now I realize like, first of all, editors are just people. They want a great story. Of course, they want you to turn in clean copy and have it be great and ready to go, but they also want to help you get there. And so I think having really honest conversations, I worked with Kayla at L and she was she was a saint because I did. I, I had moments where I was like, I don't know where I'm going with this. I don't know how to put all of this into a thousand words. Is this good? Is this good? And she'd be like, this part can go. This needs to be condensed. Like here, you know. So having a great relationship with your editor, being very organized, very communicative, meeting your deadlines. If you're doing those basic things, it's okay to go to them and ask for help. And so I think for me, it's a combination of asking for help and having a lot of experience and that for a long time was not glamorous. I know that you could look on my Instagram and think that my work in life is very glamorous now. First of all, it's not. Most of the time I'm like doing laundry because I have three kids but, or cooking, you know, a hundred small snacks and meals a day. But, you know, it's it was for a very long time. It was not quote unquote glamorous work. It was really just like local reporting and writing for local publications. And I still think those are some of the most valuable publications, you know, around because they help us connect to our local community. So I'm not, I was not afraid to start small. And, and I knew one day I, I really had a goal of writing for national, but I knew I'd have to kind of work my way up there. 
And I'm proud of that. You know, I can look back at some of my early writing and be like, this was not my best work, but you know, I was learning. And so I'm like very gentle with myself that it was a process and it takes practice. And if you're going to do it as a profession, I think, you know, you do, you kind of, you have to put in those hours. And I put in a lot of hours before I was able to make this a full-time job and, and kind of get to the place where I am now. Oh my God. I love everything you just said, Christine, because you're just really reinforcing and, you know, all the points and all the messages that I always put out on the podcast. So I just love that so much because that's exactly it, right? And yes, starting small and just really doing a lot of practice, writing a lot, working with editors a lot. I love that process of working with editors. It's one of my favorite things in the whole process because they almost always make your work so much better so much stronger and they see some things that you can't see and that whole sort of exchange between you and the editor for me that's one of my favorite parts of the job so I love that you you brought that up as well and wow I didn't even know that you had that extensive sort of background and experience in local publication writing wow that's impressive seriously because now I can definitely see I guess, like where those chops came from, right? They came from writing all that time with those local publications. That's amazing. Absolutely. And, you know, again, I, you know, I'm a mom. I had, I've spent the past decade having kids. And so for a while, travel was not something I could do. I had babies at home. I have three kids. And so I still wanted to write. And I think there's incredible stories to be told just down the street. And so I love the community. We have a really rich food community here. I wrote a lot of food pieces, restaurant reviews, small farms, you know, people doing really interesting things in agriculture. I would write about anything. And so during those years, I do, I think I honed my craft and and I knew I couldn't be far from home. I just, you know, I was either pregnant or nursing or had babies. And so that was my life. And from there, I kind of transitioned more into lifestyle writing. So I was writing for, you know, the Martha Stewart Living. I wrote for the New York Times during the pandemic, their home section. I did like how to naturally dye Easter eggs and how to make beautiful Christmas cookies. Like I'm proud of kind of what I do at home. And I love writing about home and gardening and all of that stuff. And then really, and well, I'm sure we'll get into this, but my book, when my book came out, that really changed the trajectory of my writing career and allowed me to step into the travel space. But before that, I was really more of a kind of home and garden and local writer, but I had my eye on the prize. I was like, as soon as, you know, as soon as I can start taking some trips and do that without kind of sacrificing the home front, you know, it was more, my husband's super supportive. It was more about making sure that my kids were old enough to be, you know, okay with me traveling because some of my trips are long. And um, I was able to step into the travel space and that's really been my dream. And so I do kind of feel like all of that was leading up to this place where I am now. And I still have big dreams and goals, but I do kind of feel like I am where I've always wanted to be. And that's a really exciting feeling. Yeah. Oh, I love that so much. I love that story and that example. And it's a great reminder for us too, that sometimes it takes a while to get to the space where you, you want to be. And for a variety of reasons, right? You were raising your kids, you were, you were doing that for a while and, you know, having that vision, which is also something that we talk about often is having that vision, knowing where you want to go and then being patient, I guess, with yourself and knowing that just because you're not there yet, it's not a failure at all. You're working towards it. And Sometimes it can take a while, you know, but that's just so, so awesome. And I will say too, I always had to work other jobs. I mean, there was a financial reality. And I think 
That's so important to recognize. I mean, there are some that can jump right into freelance writing full time. That was never my reality. Again, you know, we had a family, there were demands. And so I worked in different ways to kind of have that steady paycheck. And I mean, we like to joke for a while, like my husband and I would joke that my job supported my writing habits. (laughs) Like I was working a job so that, you know, but I was burning the candle on both ends. I was working during the day, come home with my kids. And then, you know, I was writing and pitching, you know, in my off hours at night when I got the kids to bed or whatnot. But it was like so important to me to keep that little flame alive and not let it die. And, you know, I worked in different sectors and education and nonprofit and different things like that. But I did kind of always keep this little, little flame alive of my writing career. And I knew that one day I'd have the time to kind of go all in, but it took a while to get there. I mean, it took me to be honest, over a decade to be able to do it full time. And for me, it was about getting to a place where I could, you know, earn a paycheck that was going to support what I needed in our family. So I'm always pretty realistic about that because I don't want to paint a picture like one day I woke up and just decided to be a freelance writer. It didn't happen like that. And so it definitely took a long time to build it to the point where it is a sustainable career. I'm also a very, I'm cautious in that way. So I might have maybe drawn that out longer than I needed to. But for me, when I finally got to a place where, okay, this is enough of a paycheck where I can leave my other work, that was a great moment. And that really only came two years ago. Yeah. And I love that we're having this conversation because that's so important, right? And exactly that, like that transition doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. It takes time to build your roster of editors, of relationships. And, you know, we didn't, ta- we didn't touch upon this in a lot of detail, but we did talk earlier how your Martha Stewart living editor introduced you to your L editor and how important that is. Because that is just such a different way to start a relationship with a publication rather than cold pitching somebody and never hearing back from them because you're just another writer who's trying to to start working with them, you know? And those relationships, it takes a while to build that too. So all of that sort of thing. But listen, I want to say right now that I'm just so impressed with everything you're doing because now that you've even expanded on that picture of, you know, having a job, you have three kids and then you're doing this at night. Plus, you're a photographer as well. We didn't even talk about that at all yet, but you're a photographer as well. And your book, Patterns of India, is a gorgeous photography book. So now I'm just like, wow, this woman, she's incredible. Well, I'm the firstborn daughter. So I'm that type A overachiever, like, you know, people pleaser overachiever, like to the nth degree. Yeah. So I would love to tell you, I mean, Patterns of India is like my heart's work. My husband is from India and we spent over a decade traveling to India together. First, just the two of us when we were married, we've been married 15 years now. And then when the kids were little, we were able to take them. And it's a really important piece of our you know, our families, it's really important to us. The pandemic kind of put a hold on our travel to India and we have yet to be back, but uh, my husband's been back several times. So we traveled over a decade there and I would just bring my camera because I'm a photographer and I had no agenda. And I think sometimes that's what allowed that book to be really like, they were just my photos that of a place I really loved and a place that became really important to me as I saw it through my husband's eyes and, and you know, met his network and friends and, and everyone there. So it's just a very intimate book. And I, you know, I had a huge archive by the time I decided to do something with it. And that was really because people just kept saying, like, you should do something with all of these photos. You know, I I had a blog way back in the day, I'd put them on there, you know, but there was never really a plan. But from the very first time I landed in India, I think with my photographer's eye, 
I could see these color stories. It was like, oh, these colors repeat in all of these beautiful ways, right? So, you know, you, you're at the flower market in the morning and you're seeing the roses and the marigolds and then you see them in the drapes of the sari and then you go and see a beautiful architecture, you know, and it's, and it has the fresco paintings and those echo the same. So I was seeing these color stories kind of echo throughout the country. And I think without even knowing it was really taking photos of these color stories. So when it came time to kind of put the book together, that's really what I wanted to lead with was that these colors in a country that's so expansive with so many languages, so many religions, so many cultures, these are the things that bind, you know, kind of the ties that bind. And it was really these colors. And so I took that idea and really, you know, expanded it into the book. And I, you know, I landed at Clarkson Potter. And I think, I'm, I will always be so grateful because it's a little bit of an odd concept and they were accepting of it. And they said, how about instead of colors, we look at it through the lens of patterns and we try and understand the history and culture through both the colors and the patterns. And it was very smart because when, and we'll, we can get into this, when you're trying to sell a book, you are thinking about marketing as well. And so that allowed it to become a book that could be inspiring to artists, that could be inspiring to interior designers. So it was no longer just a travel book, but it was a book of colors and patterns that could inspire widely. And that was so smart of them because I think it helped it reach such a large audience. So instead of people that only had a connection you know, to India or had traveled there or lived there or were from there, it kind of opened it up into different segments of the population. A lot of artists tell me they love it. You know, it, it provides inspiration for textile designers and, you know, watercolorists. And so that to me has been so gratifying to see because I really wanted it to we- reach a, a wider audience. And, and, and I think that it has. And so it's done better than I could have dreamed of and now has led to uh, my second book, which is going to be Patterns of Portugal. Wow, I love that. I love that story so much. And I was going to actually ask you, how did you come up with that concept of patterns of India? But now the way you explain it, that makes total sense. And it's amazing that you were able to find such a great partner in that publishing house, Clarkson Pattern. Clarkson Potter. Yeah, I was. And and I really do, you know, I'm so grateful because they supported me through the entire process and especially in the marketing and promotion, making sure that it got out in the world. And my book came out in March of 2020. So it was, I was oh, I didn't know that. devastated in the beginning. I thought, this is it. You know, it's, there's no way everyone's, you know, everyone was stocking up on toilet paper. <laughs> no one was buying books. And then what happened is as we all were forced in indoors, pretty much, you know, people got tired of their Netflix and they got tired of, and they started ordering books. And 2020 was one of the best years for book sales. And so I'm really grateful that my book kind of benefited from this upswing in book sales and especially beautiful books that kind of transported people. And so Patterns of India, I really credit my Instagram community, the influencers that shared it, people that just and not even influencers, just everyone who was sharing the book. And I really think that's how it just kept reaching new new and wider audiences. It was kind of just a, a groundswell of support for the book. And people, you know, especially during lockdown, it kind of gave people a window into travel again. And so, you know, it's, I can't believe it. It's coming up on its third year. It's three years old and it's still, you know, selling well and finding new audiences. And I'll get pictures of people who, you know, in faraway lands are like, I saw this in a hotel or in a bookstore or at a museum or, you know, I'm so grateful. I don't think I ever thought it could do this well. So I just am continue to be a little bit awestruck and very, very grateful. And I think, you know, I also was really aware of the fact I was a white woman writing about 
a country that was not my own. And I, I'm very glad that people could see it was rooted in a deep respect and love of a country that I got to know through my family, you know, my husband. And so it really, it's a personal project. Although again, I'm very aware of kind of my privilege going into that situation. What I hear from people is they can see a really deep respect for that culture. And again, I spent a very long time getting to know it before I even thought about writing about it. And so I hope that shows. Yeah. And and that's actually an interesting point because, you know, that's a conversation that we often have inside the community as well. Like, when do you know that you are right to tell that story? When are you the, the right person to tell that story and when you're not? And I love how you're positioning it, which is something that I think about often as well in terms of, because I do a lot of work in the Middle East, for example. So how do I have the mandate to tell some of those stories? And for me, it comes back to actually the same thing. It's having ties with the community. It's spending a lot of time there. It's learning about the place and the culture intimately before I can say that I'm the right person for this job, let's say, which is different from a lot of the dynamics that are happening in the industry where, you know, we're sort of getting parachuted in, although there's less and less of that happening now, but still it happens that we're parachuted in and then we're writing about something. But even in those cases, I think it's interesting to think, and this is something that we were discussing at IMM actually, which is that you are the vessel. You can think of yourself as the vessel for the story. And it's not your story. You are just a vessel, right? And it's the story of whoever it is that you're, you know, the people and the characters in the story are, which I think is a helpful way to think about that. Well, and I, you know, I think also as someone who really does, I mean, most of my writing is about women and travel. That already is a commonality. I'm going into spaces where I am interviewing predominantly women. I think we face a lot of similar challenges. A lot of times I'm interviewing mothers and we're talking about work-life balance. Our kids are playing together while I take their photo. You know, so I try not to go in camera blazing, taking photos, doing my interviews. Like I try and really establish a personal connection. And I find that woman to woman, uh, mother to mother, woman to woman, either way, I'm able to do that in a way I don't think a man could, especially when it comes to portraiture, especially in a place like India where there is still a lot of modesty around taking photos photographs, I always ask for permission, unless we're talking a busy street scene, I'm really talking about portraiture, I always ask for permission. And I show them what they look like in the camera, because I don't want bad photos of myself out in the world where I'm, you know, I look one eye closed, or I'm, you know, looking in the wrong way or blinking. So I really want them to see like, I want you to feel beautiful and seen in the photo I'm taking of you. So I think I also travel with my husband who speaks the language. He's, you know, he's fluent in Hindi, he's fluent in Bengali. So it allows me to have kind of a connection, a deeper, to really establish a, a, I don't want to call it a relationship, but that a connection before I take the respect before I take a photograph. And I, I think about that a lot. I'm very cognizant of coming to a place and just like starting to photograph people without knowing their customs or their traditions around being photographed, how they might have feelings about it. Even in this day and age of cell phones, I think where everyone's a camera and everyone's taking photos all the time, I still try and approach it with a lot of respect and acknowledge my privilege, you know, whether I'm a white woman moving in the society, whether I'm a tourist with more capital, more money than, than that community I'm visiting, you know, there are different levels of privilege. So I think about these things a lot. And I think as travel writers, we have to, I think it, we have to, so... Absolutely. Oh, I love that. We can have this conversation for a while too, but there's so so much more. 
there is so much that I want to ask you and we're already like, how's the time going so fast? This is crazy. But I wanted to ask you about the pitching process, actually, because you, you said something in the beginning that book concept pitching and idea pitching for publications is similar in a lot of ways, but also different in a lot of ways. So can you tell us a bit about that? Like, what are some of the similarities that you found and what are some of the differences as well? Sure. So in part of my work, what I do is I act as a book proposal coach. I've been doing this for quite a while now. I've, I've been in the publishing industry in various ways for a long time, and both on the PR side and on the author side. And so I now offer coaching to people who want to put together a book proposal to shop to publishers. And a book proposal is essentially, in a way, it's a pitch. In a way, it's also a business document because you're asking a publisher to invest in your project. So we're talking about nonfiction, heavy photography books. Those are my specialties. So we're talking travel, cookbooks, interior design, floral, gardening, all of those kind of fall into those. I don't like to use the word coffee table, but I think you're kind of understanding what I'm talking about here when I say heavy photography lifestyle books. So you know, these are 40 page documents that are not only describing your concept to the publisher, but they're giving them, you know, a background about you as the author, they're giving you marketing and PR around how you're going to sell this book, you're doing market research to see how your book fits into an already very crowded marketplace. All of this goes into this 40 page document. But I always tell my clients, every word needs to earn its place on the page. Even though it's 40 documents, this is an elevator pitch. You have to condense your idea into something that's bite-sized, something they can understand and get excited about. I mean, isn't that essentially what we're doing in magazine pitching, right? So in a way, this is, you know, it's similar and it's different, but there's a lot of similar muscles that you use when you're pitching a magazine as to when you're pitching a book. And so I am very comfortable doing book proposals. I can, you know, write them all day long. I do with my clients. I've found really good success. Most of my clients land with the top publishing house and with, you know, top agents. And sometimes I really have a hard time condensing my ideas down to a paragraph when I'm coming off these 40 page documents. You know, with this huge, again, I bite off more than I chew sometimes. So I have these huge ideas for an article and then I'm trying to put them into a paragraph and it's like, I need help. And I still need help. I am not, I don't love pitching. It's tricky for me. I'm still learning and I do love getting help. I will be the first to buy a session with someone like yourself to get help because for me, it's practice. It's getting professional help. Just how I can help people professionally, you know, do a book proposal. You are an expert at pitching. You're very good at it. And so everybody needs help. I don't think they'll ever grow out of a phase where I still need help with certain aspects of the business. And you know, too, we're expected to be so many things. We're like, we need to know how to pitch, then we need to know how to write it. And then we're supposed to share on social media and we have to have a brand platform. And so now we have to know how to take photos and videos and like, it's a lot. So there are areas where I need help. And if I need help and I can afford it, I'm going to, I'm going to go to someone and invest in their knowledge. And I think that is a beautiful thing. Yeah, I agree with you. It's interesting, especially as I sort of started this journey of building the business side of Travel Media Lab. I joined the membership community for women entrepreneurs where, you know, it wasn't cheap, by the way, that community. But, you know, getting that help and that support and that professional look at what you're doing. I am a true believer in that, too, because I think we can spend so much time and so much effort trying to figure it out on our own and you know, eventually we'll figure something out. But why do that when you just have, yeah, 
have so many people sharing their expertise. I'm a huge believer in that too. And by the way, I need to work with you on a book proposal. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Well, and here's a, here's something I'll say. I think, and I'm sure you found the same. For a long time, everyone wanted to pick my brain. And so I was finding myself on endless calls where I was, people were telling me their book idea and they were telling me all the things they wanted to do. And I'm sitting there like, I should not be listening to this for free, right? Like I have built this brain. I've built this body of knowledge. And so similar to you, I now offer a one hour call and I am happy to explain the entire publishing journey. We can go over your book. We can do all these things. But now I'm really like, you will pay for my time. People need to pay for the time. And so I think as women, a lot of times, especially, we're asked to do a lot of emotional labor. It's like, well, don't you want to mentor the next generation? Yes, I do. But that's separate. There is my business and I do a lot of mentoring, but I am very comfortable now asking people to pay to access the knowledge that I've spent so long building. And so you know, I was so excited to be able to pay you for an hour of your time. And I think more of us need to be doing that when we've put in the work to gain this body of knowledge, it's okay to ask to be paid for that. And so I have put a firm stop to the brain picking. Like you do not like if I have extra energy, it's going to my family, I'm going for a walk with a friend, you know, I'm going on a date with my husband, like I am not getting on the phone for free. 100%. No, 100%. You know, and, and it took me a while to get there, to be honest, right? Like all those things that we've been socialized into that we're just supposed to be always available and helpful and all of that. I mean, to this day, people are sending me emails and Instagram DMs asking me these huge questions and this like, seriously, like who has who has the time and, and the availability to do that for free? I mean, there is no way. So yeah, I don't do that. Same. It's so nice to kind of have this response now too, that I've really had to practice, but it's like, that is such a great question. And one I'd love to help you answer. Here's where you can sign up for an hour of my time. Absolutely. And, and I think that's so empowering to finally say like, my time is worthwhile. My time is worth money and my, my time is worth paying for. And, and this body of knowledge did not come easy. So exactly. my time and my expertise that I spent years, decades in your case, a decade, right? Of, of developing that. Experience. Yeah. Gosh, 14 years now doing this work. Yeah. Amazing. Oh goodness. So yeah, so I will definitely, we'll, we'll talk offline, but I want to, I want to book a session with you and talk about book because I've actually done a book proposal on my own, I think last year or the year before, and I've sent it to a few agents, but it never went anywhere. It wasn't 40 pages. It was, I think, three. <laughs> so now I see where I was wrong. We need to talk. We need to talk. And you know, here's what I'll say. So a little history of book proposal. And, and in a, five years ago, 10 years ago, you could get away with a document that was a Word document that was for the type of books I'm talking about. Maybe you dragged in a couple pictures into the Word document. The proposals that I am successfully finding homes for now are fully designed, beautiful, PDFs that look like they could be the book. They have beautiful photography. We spend time, I work with a graphic designer. They are very large projects that people are spending six months working with me to produce. And honestly, I'm not going to say in every case that's what you need, but it is an incredibly competitive market to land these kind of book deals. They're expensive books to produce, they're mostly hardcover, they're full color. That's what it takes. And so I think my specialty has become, you know, helping people turn this concept into a fully illustrated, full color, beautifully designed book proposal that really captures exactly what their concept is. And usually from the start to the end of our work together, it changes because they recognize that, oh, maybe that's not the exact place in the market for my book. Maybe that idea has been done already and I need to kind of go a different route or 
maybe this book is going to be too niche and I need to learn how to expand it into other markets. So I do a lot of work with people on each section of the proposal. And it's really what what's wonderful is once you have a really solid book proposal, it's a blueprint on how to write your book. So if I said to you tomorrow, go write a book, it's due in six months, most people would have no idea, like, I don't even know where to start. But if you've done the work of a thoughtful, well done proposal, you get your book deal and they say you have six months, okay, before you turn all this in, you are in a really good place, you have your structure and your blueprint, and you keep referring back to that proposal, and it makes the process so much easier. And so it's worth it to invest the time up front and do a really well done, thoughtful book proposal. Not only will you land the best publishing deal, but you're going to have that structure in place when it comes time to write the book. Oh, I love that. I love that. And and so you, I think you said that there is two ways in which people can work with you. One is that individual session, which sounds like it's more of a, you know, it's not a six month situation. It's it's a one time, let's say consulting uh, session. And then I think you offer a course, a group course that people can sign up for and go through that six month process with you, right? Tell us more about that. I do. Yeah. So I actually have three ways. So one is the one hour call. And I always say, if you have no idea where to start, you have a book in you, but you don't know where to start. The one hour call is a wonderful place to begin. Similarly, if you've sent a proposal out and you are not getting any interest, that's a good spot to begin as well, because you can send that to me and we'll spend the hour deciding what's not working about it and what you can do differently, where you need to improve. I also show you samples of proposals that have successfully sold. So now you start to get an idea of what the marketplace looks like and kind of where you need to step up your game, where you need to improve, what it takes to land a, a book deal. So that's the one hour call. You can sign up for those easily. Then I also offer one-on-one -on -one coaching. So that is a full-on, I am editing your entire document. We're having every other week, we have a one-hour Zoom call, you know, email access, kind of the whole shebang. And I get you to the finish line. And then I introduce you to agents as well. So I have a network of agents that I work with. I very highly suggest being represented by an agent before you sign a book deal. And so for those clients, that is kind of a all immersive experience, six months, and it ends with, I would say about 90% of my clients land a book deal at the end. And if they don't, there's a, there's a reason for it. And it's usually pretty clear. It's usually has to do with audience, to be totally honest. They don't have enough of an audience to support a book. And that's something we could talk about. But I'm sure you can guess you do have to have a platform. You have to have a way to sell this book. And it's not just about social media numbers. There's a lot that goes into it. But you definitely have to have a platform of some kind before you're going to write a, a hardcover expensive book and try and get it out into the world. So anyway, that's the second way. Again, one-on-one -on -one packages. And then the third way is I run a, a small live course that's a six-week course. And really, it's kind of your boot camp for writing a book proposal. I try and run it twice a year uh, in the spring and in the fall, and it's only 10 people. So it's an intimate kind of experience. You get you know your questions answered, there's group chat and all of that. I actually don't know how much longer I'll keep it up. My own work is starting to eclipse my availability. And so the spring course is full, but I'm hoping maybe to do a fall course. And in general, I think I'm at a wonderful place where I do have a lot of client work, but I'm starting to scale that back as my own work, my book projects. I do a lot of licensing in my photos. I'm doing puzzles. I'm doing stationery and then all my travel writing. So a lot of that is starting to take more and more of my time. And again, I'm very type A. So I'm always looking at, I have two charts. I have one, how I spend my time and one, my income. And when those start to get out of whack, like I'm spending way too much time and earning very little in a category, I start to kind of think, okay, how can we bring this back into balance? And so 
I'm always kind of looking at my time usage versus my income. And I think my goal is really to get to a place where I have fewer clients and I'm doing a lot more of my own work, a lot more licensing, book projects, and travel writing, really. And so I'm kind of gradually moving into that space. Whereas this past year, I did a lot of client work, a lot. So I'm looking to bring it into balance. I am still processing the chart information that you have a chart that looks like those two things. Like, wow. Yeah, I'm, it's no, I'm intense. You know, I hear that word sometimes. I'm intense. That's where you get the really smart decisions, though. You know, you say you're intense, but that's how you make smart decisions when it's driven by that kind of insight. You know, that's amazing. Yeah, and I always tell people, I, you know, and a lot of what I do, I feel like for my clients is almost business coaching. It's helping them. How are we going to finish this book on time? How how are we going to adhere to this schedule? You know, how are you creating time in your life to write? And to meet your goals, you know, we do a lot of talking about that during the book proposal process. But it, there, it's okay for that to be out of whack if the thing that's spending you're spending so much time on brings you joy. You know, if, if I would say travel writing is not my most lucrative part of my business, but I, it brings me so much joy. My editorial work brings me immense pleasure, and so I'm okay spending more time on that. And if the if the equation's a little out of whack there, that's okay. But if something is very draining and not making you money, I think it's time to reevaluate. You know, why, why am I spending my time doing this if it's not financially, you know, getting me to where I need to be? And it's also not bringing joy and new experiences into my life. So I just am always looking at that. And I think it's against the backdrop of wanting to also spend as much time with my kids as possible. So I'm not going to invest my time in something that takes me away from my family unless it's really leading me to a place that I want to go. Yeah, that makes total sense. What do you think it is about travel writing that gives you so much joy? Oh my goodness, where to start? Meeting people, getting to experience different parts of the world, getting to hear different stories, kind of walk with someone along in their story that's so different from mine. I love beautiful spaces. I love design. I love architecture. I love beautiful boutique hotels and, you know, interesting shop concepts and beautifully done restaurants. Like, I just love the act of discovering. You could put me in a city and I will walk, I mean, 12 to 15 miles in a day because I'm like, I need to see everything. I need to see every block. I need to take all the photos. I love discovering. I kind of love experiencing. I love connecting. Yeah. And I, you know, I grew up for a long time. Our trips were like, we were in a minivan driving up to Northern Michigan from Southern Michigan, or, you know, we went to Florida to visit my grandparents, but they were not, you know, it's not a lot of grand trips until... We had a little bit more means as I, you know, got into my teenage years and really started. We went to Alaska. I remember was kind of our first big trip. I remember my dad and I actually climbed Mount Kilimanjaro together on my 16th birthday. But those experiences came later. And when they came, I was so ready to accept them. And I was so appreciative. And I've kind of never stopped moving since. You know, I've always been, well, I should say I'm very rooted in my home. I've lived in, you know, we've lived in this house for a long time, but I love going out and exploring. Again, whether it's just down the street, I'm like walking every day or, you know, going to new locations. But I love discovering. I love being on the move. God, I know that. And, and I think that's why we, we've connected so well as well, because I kind of feel like we have a lot of things in common, especially like the writing and the photography part and being so visual, but also being driven by stories. And yeah, I can resonate with a lot of what you said, besides having a husband and three kids. But hopefully I'll catch up in that department at some point. But tell me like, 
tell me, you have such a, you know, you have such an illustrious career at this point, and you've done a lot of different things, you know, that we covered in the last hour, your book, your amazing success with the book, and, you know, the second book coming out, which, by the way, congratulations on that. Thank you. All the beautiful stories that you've done, and, you know, your work with clients and licensing and all of that. What do you think would be the biggest misconception that people have when they think about somebody like that, right? You're very successful. You have all these things happening. You're a travel writer. You travel, you work with, with all, you know, different tourism boards. You are a photographer. You're selling your work. Like there's a lot of things that you're doing and you're obviously a very creative person. What do you think people don't understand or misunderstand that you wish they would know about a career path like that? Oh gosh. Okay. I mean, two things. One, that it's glamorous. <laughs> I mean, so much of my time is spent in front of my computer. I'm meeting deadlines. I am constantly answering emails and Zooming. Zoom all the time. All I do is Zoom. You know, when I am traveling, it is glamorous. It's also work. And I think we've talked about this before. I'm up at sunrise to shoot in the first light. I am busy all day, you know, in meeting people, interviewing. I feel like I want to let, leave no stone unturned. So I'm hard on myself. Like I see every Everything I can. I pack my schedule. Sometimes I exhaust myself most of the time. And then I'm shooting at the end of the day in the golden light. Then I'm going back to my room and I'm transcribing my notes and I'm backing up all my photography. And after two weeks of something like that, like you're exhausted. It is exhausting. And then you come home and everyone's like, how was your vacation? And I come home to three kids who've missed me a lot. And it's like, okay, I, I have now I'm like, now I'm in my mom's zone and I need to be there for school pickup and present for them in the mornings. And I'm like jet lagged and exhausted. So yes, it's a beautiful job. I think I usually only take a couple trips a year, maybe four to five trips a year. So most of my time is spent more on the administrative and writing side. I do try and get multiple stories out of every place I travel. And I think that's something, it can be tempting to always want to take the next trip, but I really try and mine the trips that I'm on for all the little gems and stories I can. Because again, my travel time is limited. I, I am someone who needs to be home more than I'm on the road. So I think that's one misconception is that it's just very glamorous. I'm just staying in beautiful hotels, like kicking my feet up by the pool. That's very often not the case. I wish it was. It's also hard to shut off. I think when you travel even now with my family or just for fun, in the back of my mind, oh my God, it's like, what's my pitch? What's my story? And I'm like, stop. And sometimes I know I could get a press stay or I could get a you know press raid at a hotel. And I'm like, I just, I'm not going to because I just really want to show up and have this be a vacation. Like it's just, I'm just going on vacation with my kids. So that's, you know, turning it off is really hard. And then I think second is this idea that I'm successful and have made it. Like, I feel like I'm just getting started. I still have a lot of imposter syndrome. I know, I feel like there's things I should have done. You know, I should have worked at a magazine. I should have, you know, moved to New York and networked more. I should have done all these things. I still have that imposter syndrome. I do have confidence. I know I'm good at what I do. So I have a lot of self-confidence, but imposter syndrome is different. It's, I think it's like, do I deserve to be in these spaces or... How do I move through these spaces? Or like, did I take the right career track to be in these spaces? And then I also think a lot, honestly, about aging out of it. You know, I think especially with women, it's great when you're young and then you reach this age where you're very disposable in our culture. And I kind of keep thinking, oh my God, I've hit my prime right at the time where everyone's going to be like, you're an old lady, get out of this room. I do think about that. And in a way, sometimes I think, God, I, I really did give up a lot of my 20s to raising kids. And so I, you know, my 20s into my 30s. So I'm like, I'm just getting started. And yet I think the world sees me as 
you know, middle-aged. And I certainly don't see myself as that. I'm, I turned 40 this year. I feel like I'm just getting started. And I hope that there's going to be room for voices of, of my age in the industry for a long time. And that I'm kind of not viewed as a dinosaur soon because I do, I think we push women out of the picture really early, whether it's in whatever industry it's in, we're like, we deem them out of touch at a very young age. God, Christine. That's depressing. It's so relevant, right? It's what I think about a lot as well. And especially what I, what you said about imposter syndrome and thinking if you, should you have done th- something differently? I started noticing, noticing, right? That's the key point there because I used to do that a lot and I still do it. But when I notice it now, I really make a conscious effort to say, Yulia, be kind to yourself. This is your path. This path has led you here and you have to trust that it's going to lead you even further because it is so easy to go down that path of, oh, I should have done this or I should have been faster, smarter. I should have pitched more. I should have done more. I should have been in New York. Like there's just so many should-haves that we can do. And I am really just so conscious lately that like, just be kind, okay? Be be kind to yourself. This is your path and it's unfolded the way it did. And it's going to take you elsewhere as well. You know, It's, it's just resonating with me so much what you're saying. And I think also, you know, the social media, we know this now, it doesn't even hardly bear repeating, but it does me, it gives me a lot of self-doubt when I get on social media. I'm like, oh my God, everyone's publishing more. Everyone's doing more. Everyone has more followers. And then I'm like, what? Like, stop, shut it down, get off. You know, it's easy for me as an author to think I should have a hundred thousand followers. I should have sold more books. I need to do this. I need to do that. Like I can't do it all. So I'm really trying to move into a phase. This is my year of being really gentle on myself. Like I am resting if I need rest. I am taking a walk if I need to take a walk. I am putting down the phone. I am not going to be pressured to join TikTok if I don't want to. Like I just need to put some boundaries in place to also just feel my success and celebrate it and feel like I'm I'm in a good place. And I think I don't want to be in that comparison game. I really just want to focus on telling quality stories, doing quality work and letting a lot of it go. I just, I do, I still fall into that trap a lot. And I think social media for me is that place I can fall into it. I'm, I'm just on Instagram, but Instagram, I can start looking. It's like, everyone's traveling. Everyone's doing this. I'm at home with sick kids. Like I'm a loser. That's the time to log off. And I really, it's like, again, my method is I take a walk, put my phone down, leave it, take a long walk. And when you get back, it's like, you always feel better. You have new ideas. You feel good. Your body feels energized, but oh gosh, I fall into that all the time. I do. I don't think you, I don't know that you ever outgrow that in your career. Yeah. You just learn how to like not give that voice that much credence really, and just move forward anyway. And I think it's interesting because it's also sometimes helpful to see comparisons, but in a very different way. And what I mean by that is sometimes people come up to me and they're like, oh my God, you have so however many followers on Instagram. And to your point, you're like, well, I should, you know, maybe I should have 100,000 if I'm a book author. But somebody sees your Instagram and they're like, oh my God, she has so many followers. So it's all also very relative with where we are, which again, goes back to that point of comparison. Well, and my my husband's not on social media. And he's really funny, because like, in his eyes, I'm a star. Exactly. You have 22,000 people that follow you. It's like, that's nothing. He's like, that's everything. I'm like, Oh, thank you, honey. But like, he doesn't even know what honestly doesn't know what Instagram is. But it's very funny, because in his perspective, he's like, 22,000 people like tune in to see what you have to say. And I'm like, well, I try and tell him about the algorithm and like no one's seeing. He's just like, I think it's amazing. It's like, well, thank you. 
So you're right. It's all about perspective. Totally. And then what you said about aging. Oh my God, that hit the spots. I'm turning 40 this year as well. And you know, it's interesting because what I've started thinking about lately is physically being able to do this job because on some of the photography, it's not only like everything that you've described, how the schedule is and everything, but then you're physically very active with the camera. Absolutely. And carrying it and, oh, and the strain on your neck. Oh my God. The back is killing me. And and I'm like, if, when I'm 60, would, will I be able to do this? You know, hopefully, but I start thinking, well, what do I need to do now? And what does that mean for when I'm 60? You know, it's so interesting to think about that because yeah, that's that's a very real thing as well. And and even the jet lag too. I mean, my husband is, he's a little older than I am. He just got back from India he was dead for a week. Like he was napping for hours during the day. I was like, are you okay? But seeing how age, you know, in his mind, he's 20, but his body is not. And and that jet lag from India home, I mean, it did a number on him. It was brutal. And I think for the first time it clicked to him, like I might not be able to do this forever. I mean, he was used to like, he goes to India. He's same thing. He's in fundraising. He's pulling long days. You get home. He's like back on his feet. He's fine that was not the case anymore. And so I do think there's that aging component of like, how do we do this work in a way that is sustainable for our bodies, really? Because it is very physical work. Yeah. And for me, one of the answers is moving closer to the region where I want to do the work. So I don't have any more of those transatlantic flights, you know, but yeah, there's different things that we can think of. But, you know, before we close, and I I do have a few more things I want to just ask you, but I think one last thing on the aging is that yes, 100% agree with you that we are at a certain point, we, we turn into pumpkins and become irrelevant, it seems like, and that's what the media is really set on convincing us. But at the same time, I'm also very hopeful because I kind of feel like you, I am growing into the most amazing version of me and I'm just getting started. Sometimes I think when I have those thoughts, it's like, well, you know, okay, we're getting irrelevant over here, but let's create our own space where we are relevant. And that is very exciting and hopeful. There's always hope. I was telling a friend, I gave a talk recently to some high schoolers about my career. I was asked to come in and talk to them. And I said, who here has ever subscribed to a magazine and no one raised their hand? And I'm like, oh my God. And I'm like, who's ever read a magazine? And there were like three hands raised out of the class. I was just like, oh my God. And then I thought, it's okay. You know, we can create our own spaces. We can create our spaces where magazines and print are still cherished. There will always be a place for books. It's not always going to be for everyone. And maybe the new generation will have different ways that they get their information But we can certainly create spaces where we still believe in the power of print. We still believe in beautiful material that is tactile and and you can hold in your hands. Like all of that can still exist. So that's okay. There can be their reality and our reality and they can coexist. I tried not to get first so depressed about it. And then it was like, you know, I probably wasn't reading magazines in the same way as, you know, when I was that age, we're going to let it go. We're going to make our own spaces. It's okay. We can create our own spaces, Christine, or we can just sign up for TikTok. I mean, I literally reinstated TikTok yesterday. I had it, I downloaded it, I deleted it. And yes, literally yesterday, the day before our conversation, I'm like, let me see if I need to get back on TikTok. Oh, no. Let me know how it goes. I just, that's a bridge I, again, do not have the energy to cross at the moment. Yeah, totally. Well, I think about it in terms of who knows how the format will look like. 
you know, 20 years from now, but the need for stories will always be there. That's what kind of gives me hope, you know, that maybe we'll transport it via telepathy or something, but, you know, we'll be telling stories throughout history, I think. Christine, I don't know how this hour has passed so fast because I feel like we just only started scratching the surface and really getting into some really interesting spaces. Uh, but of course, we also have to get you. Ha- you have to get back to your your three kids and your crazy schedule. And I am actually jet lagged today because I just landed from Doha yesterday. <laughs> um, so we're gonna be start. We're gonna be wrapping up this conversation. But before we do, a couple of things I wanted to ask you. And one was, uh, what is it that makes you? excited about what's coming up for you on the horizon whether it's work whether it's some other things or maybe personal projects that you're working on but what is something that's given you a lot of joy at the moment oh my goodness i we are taking a family trip coming up to a place that we've really wanted to go all together and so i'm excited it's kind of our first bigger trip post pandemic with our kids and so that excites me very much. I'm really, really ready to start introducing my children to the world of travel in the way I travel. They, you know, we haven't been able to do that together really um, recently. And so I have a couple big trips planned for us this year that really do center around family travel, exposing my kids to new places, new stories, new people. And I'm very, very excited for that. And then I do have some wonderful projects of my own and travel of my own and places I'm really excited. I'm doing domestic travel, which I haven't done in a while. You know, I've been going kind of far flung locations. I'm like, let me get, let me dig in at home and see domestically what's going on. So I have some really lovely trips coming up domestically. And obviously, very excited for spring of 2024 when my next book comes out. Patterns of Portugal, it is, oh my goodness, I think it's going to be so beautiful. And I'm just, I, um, there's a reason I chose Portugal. It'll be in the book. I'll be talking about it a lot. So make sure, you know, you hopefully can all tune in sharing why I picked Portugal. There's some really fun reasons, both kind of family reasons and larger cultural reasons. It's such a beautiful country. It was such a pleasure to spend the past couple of years traveling there extensively, meeting people. And I'm um, just really excited. I think it's going to be a beautiful book. I'm excited to get on the road. And I didn't really get a book tour with Patterns of India because of the pandemic. So I'm excited to get back out in the community and host events and talk about why we love to travel and see new places and share the book. So that's probably my biggest professional excitement right now. Oh, I can't even imagine. That sounds so amazing. And I love how that concept patterns of, you know, a country can just really be expandable. And, you know, you can see so many projects like that in the future, which is really cool. So yeah, congrats again on the book. That's really amazing. Thank you. Really awesome. And you can find Christine on her website, which we're going to link to in the show notes. And we're also going to link to her Instagram and link to her course on book proposals. So you guys can all see what she's working on and, and join her amazing, inspiring journey and follow along as well. And finally, I want to ask you a question that I always sort of close these conversations with. It's a big bit of a big question, but how would you start answering this? What does it mean to be a woman in travel who is stepping into her brilliance today? Oh, that's a, that is a big, that's a big question. I think for me, it's about trusting that I know what I'm doing after all this time, like very much believing in myself, believing in women and other women, and really believing that our stories deserve to be heard. Oh, 
That is so beautiful. That is so amazing. And of course, in community with each other is where we find all that support and all that strength and power to to continue and to do this beautiful work. So I love this, Christine. That's a very amazing sentiment to end the conversation on. And I want to thank you so much for coming today. This was such a pleasure. I can't believe how fast it went. Right? It did. It it flew by. It really flew by. I keep looking at the clock and like, oh God, we need to start wrapping up, but I don't want to. (laughs) No, but this, it was amazing. I'm such a privilege to be here. I really love, I do. I genuinely love your podcast. I tell all travel writers to listen to it. I think it is essential listening. And I think what you're doing for this community is a huge service really taking down the barriers of entry and letting people know that everyone has stories that they can tell and empowering people to do that. So I applaud you. I love what you're doing. Huge fan. Very honored to be here. So thank you. Likewise. Likewise. It's so cool how we're each other's fans. I love it. Fangirls, big time. I know. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Christine. And we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Christine. And if so, I want to ask you to please take a minute right now to support our show. You can do that by leaving us a rating or review on the podcast app that you're listening to right now, or by sharing this episode with your friends, loved ones, or posting about it on social media. It really helps us get discovered by more listeners that would find our show helpful. And it means so much to me. I read every single review we get and I take them very seriously because I want to create a great show for you. So if you've been inspired by something you heard today in our conversation with Christine or in any other episodes of our show, please take just a minute to support it by leaving us your rating or review. This is one of the best ways you can help us out. Thank you so much again for listening today and stay tuned for next week.